If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. We have a mission to improve the welfare of horses throughout the world through the safe education of riders, handlers and trainers and that's what these chats are all about. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Our guest today is Peter Gillis. Peter's from an eventing background. He's one up to three star. He's now retired as a competitive rider but he's a full-time coach and trainer. He teaches at all levels in the eventing disciplines of dressage, show jumping and cross country. Peter's also a level one show jumping course designer. He's a level three cross country course designer and he's a licensed racehorse trainer. How are you, Peter? I'm really good, thanks, Dennis. Good. Now, Peter, we start off with a favourite quote. So have you got one for us? Yes, it comes from uh, the lady who first taught me, actually, and she often said it to me. Mm -hmm. And she'd always say, ride boldly, lad, and never fear the spills which I think is Banjo Patterson. I was going to say, it's um, yeah, it wouldn't have come from her originally. Yeah. What was her name? It was Del Throsby. Okay. In um, Throsby Park Riding School yep. in Moss Farm. Yep. Okay. That's a good one. Now, she said that to you. Do you say that to any of your students? Occasionally I have said it. Not very often, but I have said it. Especially, I think it applies to eventing very well. Yes. In that yes. cross country, you just, you have to be committed and you have to have 100% go at it, you know. And right. if you start to think about what happens when you fall off, well, then you're more likely that's to. time to maybe yeah. stop. Yeah, you're mm. more likely to, and that might be time to not do it anymore. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Now, Peter, you were a little bit late coming into eventing, weren't you? What, what do you think your first memories of actual horses were riding? Uh, my sister was very keen. I have a sister who's a couple of years younger, mm-hmm. and... When she was about seven and I was nine, I think, mum bought a pony for us. And I think I went to pony club two or three times and I rode a little bit, but all my friends played football. So I wanted to go and play football. Mm-hmm. And um, my had a fall off the pony at the same time and hurt her ankle fairly badly. So she didn't want to ride anymore. So the pony only lasted about four months. Okay. Four or five okay. months. And then yeah. mum sold him. Yeah. And then um, it wasn't until I was... 14 or so that my sister wanted to try again and she heard about Throsby Park so she and a group of friends were going to go over for a ride one day and I I'd actually been a little bit ill and couldn't play football that weekend so I ended up tagging along as well and within a couple of months I was working over there and yeah I rode at the riding school until I left school basically yeah and then when you left school did you go straight into horses or did you have another job what happened there no I it had always been drummed into me that you you know, had to get a good job and all this sort of business. I ended up going into engineering. I mm-hmm. became a fitter and turner by trade and did engineering at tech and ended up in the engineering department of an underground coal mining machinery company. So I was uh, ended up a draftsman and worked in the research and development sections. And so that was to earn me the money to then have the horses. Have the horses. But you're full-time with horses now. What brought you back into it? I couldn't give them up, basically. <laughs> yep. There was a period there, you know, I always worked purely to support my horses. I didn't ever really think of my work as a career or anything. Mm-hmm. 
it was just a means of earning money so that I could have my horses. Mm-hmm. And I bought my first horse when I was about 21 or something like that, 21, 22. And then I started eventing about then. And I just, I really enjoyed it. I ended up going overseas and riding and doing things. And I always had the engineering to go back to, to earn money mm-hmm. when I needed money. And then I tried to give up horses a couple of times. I actually competed in modern pentathlon for a couple of years, Mm -hmm. thinking, well, at least I'll still ride a little bit in that, but I'm not going to sit on a horse any other time. And um, I just couldn't handle it, really. I ended up having to get another horse and (laughs) going back to them. And then the decision to go full-time came really when my first son was born. Mm -hmm. When he was about 12 months old, I just found I was going to work before he woke up of a morning and if I came home and rode my horse before I went inside, he'd be inside, mm. he'd be asleep by the mm-hmm. time I went inside. So when my wife was pregnant with our second boy, I said to her that I think I'll leave work and go full-time horses. Mm-hmm. Good, good, yeah. And it's been great. It's given me the flexibility to be able to, you know, follow the boys all through their primary school years and mm-hmm. to go to just about everything that they attended at school, yeah. all that sort of stuff, yeah. which was just lovely, Yeah, which was really lovely. What do you think for people that want to start with horses? What do you think the core skills or character traits are? You know, someone who's in the position you were, you know, when you first left school. And and I know that, you know, it, it was, there wasn't a career in horses, probably even when you started, you know, but there is now. And if there's someone who's ready to leave school and work with horses, what sort of character traits or core skills do you think they need? Well, You've got to love it, so that's the first thing. You've got to love the horses. I think you need to be, I think, quiet-natured people Mm -hmm. are better. You need a lot of patience. You've got to be able to stay calm. You've got to be able to work hard because it's not an easy way to make a living. And, um, you know, that's what I sort of found when I went full-time. You're suddenly working for yourself. You've just got to accept whatever comes along and Often you'd say yes to everything and then suddenly realise you had too many horses. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was just, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. But mm. it's just really being willing to work hard, to have dedication and, yeah, and a lot of patience with all your horses. Take your time. Yep. Take yep. your time. Mm. And you said before that, you know, that you really enjoyed the flexibility the job has, that you've been able to have a lot more time with your sons and what you would have if you are in another career. Is there anything else you want to say about the best things in the horse industry? You know, the best thing is the horses themselves. Mm-hmm. When you spend as much time as you do with some horses, like my best horse was a horse called Mr. JJ. We got him to race, actually, as a three-year-old. We were asked to give him one more try. He ran last twice. And mm-hmm. so the owner then said, sell him. And, and we um, popped him over a cross rail before we put him up for sale and we, my wife and I looked at him and just thought, wow, this is a mm. a fairly good horse. So we ended up buying him. He's now 23 and still in the paddock. And, you know, he went through, I don't know, 10 years of competition. And we're sitting on him an hour to an hour and a half a day, six days a week mm. for nine months of the year. You know, it's a heck of a lot of time you spend with them. Mm. So mm. you've got to like them. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's really good. What about people who've influenced you and helped you with your career? I think Del Throsby had a lot of influence early on yes. because you now I only rode at the riding school. Dell was a lovely lady who was a real genuine horsewoman. She allowed us to help break in. She bred a lot of ponies and things for the riding school and 
she had us breaking them in from the age of about, when I was about 15, I think, mm-hmm. we started breaking in ponies. And, you know, she'd show us all the methods and help us along the way. And I learned a lot of the horsemanship side of skills, I think, from Dell. Mm-hmm. Once I started eventing, you know, Merv Bennett was still competing at the time. Yep. A lovely bloke and very approachable, you know, would answer any question you asked him, all that sort of thing. I had a few lessons off Neil Lavis early on. Mm-hmm. He was really good. And then I went to England and worked for Lucinda Green okay. over in the UK. Spent seven months at her place. She was fantastic. You know, just a lovely lady. And it was a really, really good experience to go over there and see what the world's like over there. So, yeah. Quite mm-hmm. a few people. I, I didn't have that many lessons in my younger days, mm-hmm. you know, partly because it was expensive and you didn't, you just didn't do much. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one one other person, Trevor Morris. I used to have some jumping lessons off early in my career with Trevor Morris. I still see Trevor at a lot of pony club things where he and I are now both both instructors. <laughs> okay. You know, which is lovely. Quite a few. Yeah. You talked about Mr. JJ. Yeah. He had a big influence on you. Were there any other horses that have really helped you with your career? The very first horse I bought, a horse called Rippling On, Sam, I mm-hmm. used to call him. He was a thoroughbred off the track. Which thoroughbreds were always my favourites. <laughs> but he, you know, he'd been a difficult horse. He'd been ridden by two other eventers prior to me and had never actually competed. They couldn't get him in water and different things. I bought him and 18 months later was having a go at a three-star event. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. Which, yeah. which was a bit too quick. But, yeah. you know, he, he gave me a real taste for the sport. Mm-hmm. And that was all just prior to going to England. Mm-hmm. So it just got my enthusiasm really going. And then I went over there and just loved it. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. But he was probably one of the most influential. JJ, Mr. JJ was by far my best horse. Mm-hmm. Um, I had another one, Rebel Jack, who qualified for three-star level, but he was a really difficult horse. Well, JJ was difficult as well, but Jack was difficult, and I spent five years with him, and in the end I gave up. He was a bit too hard to get along with. Mm -hmm. JJ, I spent a lot of years with him. (laughs) He was still a rat at the end, but he came good and competed well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think your proudest moment's been? I think one of the nicest things that's happened was when I won Berrima three-star. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen the results. I hadn't looked at the results at the competition because I, I often would do a comp and not look at the scoreboard just so that I didn't have any anticipation in my head. You know, I could just think about each phase, complete each phase, mm-hmm. and then worry about how it got. Sure. And um, I was walking over to – I'd just finished the cross-country. It was the last phase. And I was walking back towards the scoreboard and – my son Thomas, he was only about four at the time, came running up to me and just said, Daddy, Daddy, you're a winner. <laughs> you know, and that was just really lovely. Mm, mm. That's probably one of the nicest things. But just, you know, any time you can get a horse to go better mm-hmm. or to go well in a nice way and improve them makes you feel good. Mm, mm. You know, it's all good. You talked earlier about the time that it took to finish your full-time job to come home to ride your horse meant that you just weren't having any time with your son and that was before you actually started, you know, in a full-time career with horses. Was that your biggest challenge or have there been other challenges, you know, thinking about sort of when you first started with horses up to where you are now as a full-time professional? What's been your biggest challenge? I suppose in a way it was I was never very good at selling horses on or anything. Mm -hmm. 
I've always disliked the buying and selling of horses a lot, and I never had a lot of money to be able to just, you know, sell them on and buy new ones all the time, trying to look for that good one. So I'd always just work with the one I had, really, and keep thinking, right, well, it's going to get better. You know, I'm going to make this horse better mm-hmm. and keep trying, you know, and sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But, yeah, to be really competitive, you have to turn the horses over a little bit to really find those good ones and, so that you can always be competing at the top level. But I suppose I wanted to give the horses time and try and I didn't have the money to be able to just go and buy new ones all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's always a bit of a challenge. And then once you've got a family and everything, the priorities change slightly. Sure. So you just work with what you got. Yep. Then just thinking about you as a coach, I'm going to ask you about a common fault that you might see, but because you're teaching across dressage, show jumping, and cross-country, have you got a common fault? But I also want you to talk about how to fix it. Common fault that you see with riders that's the same thing across all phases. Well, I think, in a way, my pet thing really is contact. Mm -hmm. I always think good hands make a good rider. And if you can have, you know, real feel in your fingers, then you're going to communicate better with your horse. Mm-hmm. When I look back over the years, I don't remember many people really trying to explain contact to me. Now it was always just pick up the reins and hold the other end sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I like to try to explain it to people and, and get them to understand what they're trying to feel through the reins. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look horsechats.com. And do you find that if you've improved it on the flat, which phase, because sometimes people might have a better contact show jumping and not understand it the same on the flat, do you find that there's a particular phase that it's easier for the riders to pick up the idea of contact? You know, maybe their horse is going a bit more forward on the cross country, so they've got a better contact cross country than what they do, say, in the arena where the horse may not be going forward enough. Is there any particular phase that you... I think it, it can vary on, on what phase they, it clicks with them. Mm-hmm. But I think the big thing is that, like I always like to say, that contact has two components to it. One is whether it's hard or soft, and the other is whether it's light or heavy. And if you had a graph, you know, with my mechanical background, I often <laughs> talk about graphs or lines or all that sort of thing because I can picture that in my mind, mm-hmm. you know, having been a draftsman for so long. But if you have a graph and you, on one side you've got hard and soft and on the other side you've got light and heavy, you can draw a line across from one side to the other anywhere and have that combination of the two. Now, if you're sitting on a galloper going three-quarter place trying to keep it at that pace, you've probably got hard and heavy. Now, if you're sitting on a dressage horse, hopefully in a really nice canter, hopefully you've got light and soft. Mm-hmm. But it can vary from one to the other and it can vary in an instant and then be gone again and back to being light and soft. And it's just getting people to understand that a soft contact doesn't necessarily mean there's no pressure in the rain. It can be, you know, 10 pounds of pressure. I've only ever heard one person quantify how much pressure you should have in the rain when you're riding. And that was George Morris, the American show jumping instructor. And he would say, one to three pound in walk, three to five pound in trot, five to ten in canter, or ten to twenty in gallop. You know, so he's actually put a number on it. Mm. And to get people to realise that actually, okay, cross country, if you're holding ten pounds of pressure in the rain, that's okay. 
as long as you're still a bit soft in your arm, you're still allowing the horse to gallop and the horse is taking you, then that's okay to have that much pressure. You know, it's just getting people to realize that, yeah, every horse is different. Mm-hmm. And some horses naturally go light, some horses naturally go heavy. You've got to work out what they do naturally, ride them accordingly, and then if they're going in a way that you don't want them to go, then you have to train them to go the way you want them to go. Mm-hmm. So if a horse wants to go with a heavy contact and you don't want to ride a horse like that, well, then you've got to train him to go lighter. Mm-hmm. So lots of half halts and all that sort of business. So, yeah, it's just getting people to realise that it's, it's not all nicey-nicey, I suppose. It's, <laughs> not, it's got to be there and it's got to be a solid contact. It's got to be, you know, a true connection. Mm, not mm. just a, a really light iffy, you know, the weight of the rain, hoping that you give a connection to the other end. Yes, sort of yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, you're talking about connection from the other end. It's uh, Yeah, that's probably part as well. Yeah, the horse has to take that connection. He has to trust that connection. Mm. He has to accept that connection. Mm, mm. And the very first thing is to get the horse to accept the contact. Mm. Once he accepts the contact, you can then sort of tell him what to do with it a little bit. Yep. You know, but he's got to understand it and accept it first. Mm. You know, so the initial stage is not worried where the head is. You're just feeling his mouth and letting him, letting him figure it out for himself. Yeah. And when he figures out that that contact is okay, he's going to relax and put his head in a, in a comfortable spot, and that's mm. actually where we want him to put it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if we can turn all our training around where it's the horse that makes the right decision to do the thing we're asking, then... The horse has got it. He's worked it out. Yeah. But if we've just made him do something and he doesn't understand why he's being made to do that, mm-hmm. he's probably going to fight it and never actually accept it fully. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. Yes. Yes. And I think it's a good good philosophy yeah. that you have in the training too, you know, that you're, you're getting the horse in an outline because it's the most comfortable place for him to be, not because you're forcing them to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, just thinking about your racehorse training and your eventing, if you were training racehorses and, you know, training for long-distance races, training three-day eventers, what's the key differences between racing fitness and eventing fitness? Um, Well, the way I tend to do it, I treat my racehorses like eventers, Mm -hmm. basically. The only difference is they go faster. Okay. After a certain period of time, they start to go faster. Yep. So... I still I do all the miles on them. I still do a bit of flat work. Mm-hmm. It's not high-level dressage by any stretch. It's just getting them long and low, getting them relaxed, nice big large shapes so that they're going forward, they're loose and relaxed and using themselves equally, mm-hmm. you know, building all their muscles correctly. Lots of that. I do a lot of miles hanging out. I, I live near the Penrose State Forest, so I've got 10,000 acres to ride. <laughs> that would be good, yep. <laughs> Which is really handy, yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't. I try to treat them the same. Basically, okay. it's just that they go to the track three times a week, and I put a track rider on, and they go a bit quicker. Okay. And I suppose the eventers you know, do I, the jumping, don't they? Yeah, and they, yeah. and they would jump or in their canter sessions, they just don't hit the same sort of speed. Mm. You know, though the eventers getting close to a big competition when they were doing the full, the long format. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd yep. you'd do a few sprints. Yes. And you might canter them up the hill and you might be travelling at six or 700 metres a minute mm-hmm. because in those days you had your steeplechase and you had to gallop for four minutes at 690 metres a minute at three-star yep. level. 
Yeah. You know, so they had to be very fit horses. Mm-hmm. That's what attracted me to the sport, I think, initially, was the challenge of, of getting the horse fit enough to do the job that you wanted to do. Yeah. You know, and one of the biggest achievements I always thought was to complete the event with a sound and very well horse. Mm-hmm. And if you did that, then you'd really done your job well. Yeah. If you happened to be in the placings, well, that was a bonus. But Yes. All right, Peter, have you got a book that you can recommend to our listeners, something they can use to complement their training? I quite like the book Horses Were Made to Be Horses by mm-hmm. Franz yep. Moringa. Yep. That was an, a good read, and I love the fact that I think one of the first things he says is the first most important thing about riding is to stay on. <laughs> yes. And the second most important thing is to sit still, <laughs> something like that. And um, one other one that I remember reading a lot when I was a teenager and things was Equitation by Henry Winmayland, Yep. which is a very old, old style and old-fashioned book, but... And it had some good horsemanship and good basic theories in it. Mm-hmm. I quite like that. All right. Tell me what you're looking forward to. Do your kids ride? My boys don't have an interest in, in horses at all, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. The older boy wants to fly planes and, mm-hmm. and the younger boy loves all forms of sport. He loves his soccer and his, mm. anything you can hit or kick, really. So what are you looking forward to horse-wise? Have you got students coming along? You've got Because uh, you're not competing anymore, are you? No, I haven't competed now for two and a bit years. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying the coaching. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a lot of teaching at the moment. And you know, I find it really enjoyable to, you know, even when you get a pupil who has never jumped a 45-centimetre fence, you know, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. manage to give them the confidence to actually have a go and they achieve it and they do it safely. Yep. You know, and yep. to see the grin on their face when they've done something like that is amazing. Yes, yes. And I find that almost as rewarding as you know, if you're teaching a one-star person to jump a fence and they do it slightly better than last time. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> you know, yep. It seems to be bigger steps in those early days, you okay. know, much bigger steps for the people. And yep. it's, it's nice. Okay. So, yes, I'm enjoying that. I'm hopefully... I might get another racehorse or something in work mm-hmm. one day mm-hmm. and have a play around. I Again, I just, I really enjoy just getting the horses fit and working with them, spending the time with the horse. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Getting to know them well. Can you summarise just in a few sentences, just your philosophy about horses? I think the main thing is to keep it simple. Mm-hmm. You know, KISS principle. Just always breaking things down to their smallest components. If you break it down to its the smallest components, then each thing that you're trying to achieve is actually a very simple thing. Mm-hmm. If you think of it in a simple way and you use your brain and you think, then you're probably going to get a clear message to your horse because it's such a simple idea. And that way you give the horse the best chance of actually understanding what you want. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so just really keeping it simple Making sure that you think a lot, mm-hmm. making sure you make decisions all the time. Everything you do, you know, if you ask your horse to trot, you've got to make the decision, okay, is this the trot that I want? Is it fast enough? Is it slow enough? Does it have enough impulsion? And you've got to keep making decisions and answering those decisions. And if it's not what you want, you've got to be effective enough to make it happen to how you want it to happen, you know? And if you have that really clear idea in your head, then and you're consistent with how you ask for it, then the horse is going to learn. Okay. I think that's good. I think, I think that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. Now, Peter, how can people contact you? Um, by phone, which is 
Would you like a number? Yeah, you may yeah. as well say it. We will have this on your um, page, which will be horsechats.com slash Peter Gillis, or else just go to horsechats.com and search for Peter. But if you say the number, just in case people have got pen yep. and paper and or, you know, put it on their phone yep. or well, whatever, we... but, uh, yeah, please <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, well, the number is 0417-268-468. Okay. Have you got an email, Peter, or you prefer by phone? No, phone. Um, there is an email, and mm-hmm. it is pgeventer at hynet, which is H-I-N-E-T dot net dot A-U. Okay. All right, Peter, thank you for talking to us today. Thank you for talking about, you know, just different fitness. Um, interesting always to bring someone in with something that's just got something extra to add, like you had, you know, with your, your racing and um, also I think the time that you spent overseas is invaluable, the people that you work with and um, talking in a good explanation about contact. So thanks for talking to us and hopefully we'll talk to you again sometime soon. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Glenn. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 